Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to start, and hopefully we'll get a little bit further than that tonight. In Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, folks, this catch us back up with where we've been. Once again, Jesus is using a parable to teach a point or to teach a truth. Remember, the parables are stories that Jesus would use to teach a truth. He's been warning the Jews when we were last together a few many weeks ago. He has been warning the Jews that they're going to be judged and removed from their land for rejecting God's Son and God's purposes will now be accomplished through others, which we looked at last time we were together, which is the church, who will produce his desired fruit. Go with me back to Matthew 21. Look at verses 33 through 43, just to kind of re realign ourselves with what he's been doing, what he's been saying. In Matthew 21, verse 33, Jesus says, Here then another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country when the season for fruit drew near. He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So we've been looking at the fact that Jesus has been warning the Jews that because of their rejection of him and the fact they're going to kill him, that he's going to move his purposes from the Jews to the church now for a season. We, the church has not replaced Israel, but he's put them on hold as the scriptures taught, and we've laid that out many, many times, so we're not going to get into that. And now his desire is that through the church, his purposes would be accomplished and fruit would be produced. But now in the section we're in, chapter 22, he tells another parable along the same line, dealing with the rejection of the Jews and being open to the Gentiles. But there is a truth in this parable that we really need to see. You see, in this parable, Jesus continues his teaching, but he explains that entry into the kingdom is tied to a proper response 
to the invitation to enter the kingdom. That's what I want you to hear. I'm going to say it again. If you want to write it down that way, it might help you. In this parable, he's teaching that entry into the kingdom is tied to a proper response to the invitation to enter the kingdom. Notice how the ones who were invited were not worthy. Look again at verse 8. In verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Remember, he had already sent his servants out a couple of times to invite them to come to the wedding feast, and they didn't want to come. So he said they're not worthy. But listen closely. Worthiness to be invited into God's kingdom is not tied to how good you are. They were worthy enough to be invited, correct? People, when we hear that they weren't worthy to enter the kingdom, people say, well, they probably weren't worthy to be invited. No, no. They were worthy to be invited. They weren't worthy to enter the kingdom. Worthiness to enter the kingdom is not tied to how good or bad you are. Worthiness is tied to how you respond to the invitation. You all know 2 Peter 3.9, that God does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Let me show you another passage that says the same thing. I think sometimes when we hear a passage that's been used a lot, and we hear a lot, that we kind of get numb to what it says. Let me show you another way that God says it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 3 and 4. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, Paul says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? Are there people that are unworthy to be invited? No, everyone's worthy to be invited. Your worthiness does not determine whether or not God offers you salvation. It's offered to everyone freely. Your worthiness to enter the kingdom is determined by how you respond to the invitation. Uh, no, notice how the scripture teaches us. Well, let me just say this to you as well before I go on to that. Nor is entry determined by who's, how good and how bad you are. Look, look again at... at uh, Back in Matthew 22, look at verse 10. Those servants went out into the roads, and he gathered all whom they found, both what? Both the bad and the good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Some of you have been taught, some of you that are listening online, you've fallen prey to this mindset that you're not good enough to be able to get into heaven because you're such a bad sinner. Listen to me. No one's good enough to get into heaven. The entry into heaven is when you, by faith, humble yourself and acknowledge that God paid for your entry into heaven through his own son, through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the dead. And when you believe by faith that what Jesus did covers you and you receive it for yourself, you're worthy to enter the kingdom. Everyone's invited. Many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen? The people that humble themselves and say, I'm not good enough, I'm not bad enough, I need Jesus. It's not tied to how good I am or how bad I am to be invited. It's not tied to how good or bad I am, whether or not I get in. It's tied to him alone and my faith in that. But I want you to see that from what we've been looking at. Go back with Matthew chapter 5. Jesus has been laying the foundation of what he's trying to teach in this parable. Of course, that first group that he went out and invited over and over is who? In this parable, the Jews. 
And then he said they're not worthy because they haven't responded properly. Go out and invite everyone that you find. And that's where he starts to invite the Gentiles as well. And we're included in God's plan. Listen to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 3 through 6. Jesus in the, par- the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jump over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 9 through 26. Paul's been laying out that all are guilty. All are needing of salvation. He says in verse 9, he says, What then, are we Jews any better off? Romans chapter 3 verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, he laid this out in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." "...whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It's to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Now, to make sure you're with me, and I'm hoping that in the room full of people that I've known for years and and been teaching to for years, I'm pretty sure you know the gospel, and if you haven't, listen closely. Salvation is by faith alone in what Jesus has done. Not in any, you don't bring anything to the table. I deal with too many people that claim to be Christians around the country as I go around and I'll ask people, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And too many people in church say, I hope so. And I'll say, why do you hope so? Well, they'll they'll say, well, but I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to live a good life. You're going to see in our parable tonight that that's dangerous and that means you're probably not in the kingdom. Because if you think it's tied to you and how good you've been or how bad you've been, you totally miss it. First off, don't think you can be so bad that God will never offer you salvation or never forgive you. There's nothing you can do that make him say, I'm not going to forgive you. Unless the only thing is that you reject when he calls you to salvation and offers you this free gift. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven. But at the same time. Don't think that you bring anything to the table that God owes you anything and you've been better than your neighbor. Or you're not as bad as that sister so-and-so across the pew from you in church. When any time Christians start thinking that God owes them something because they've prayed more or given more or worked harder, you totally don't get it. It's all by Him. 
You want to be worthy to get into the kingdom? Acknowledge that your worthiness is not tied to how good you've been or how bad you've been, but your worthiness is just simply whether or not you respond in faith to the offer of salvation. The law's purpose is to show you you can't keep it. Once you realize I can't keep the law perfectly, the law's done its job. It's driven you to the, te- to the teacher, to the master. And you humble yourself and say, Lord Jesus, if I'm going to get into heaven, it's because you give it to me. Go to John chapter 6. All along, Jesus has been teaching that what God's looking for is faith. Look at verses 28 and 29. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the Jews come to Jesus and they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what what does God want us to do that will make us pleasing before him? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. You want to do something to get into heaven? Believe in Jesus. That's it. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verses 44 and 45. John chapter 6 verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Stop. Does God draw everybody? Because it says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Does God draw everybody? Oh, your answer is correct if you say yes. But do you have any scriptural reason, scriptural backing to your yes? More than I just want it to be that way? His desire is that none should perish and that all come to repentance. And if no one can come to him unless the Spirit draws them first. And we've also seen in our parable for tonight, many are called, but few are chosen. These ones who rejected the offered end to the kingdom, the Jews, were they invited? Yes, they were. Were they drawn? Yes, they were. Actually, keep reading with me in chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. We answer that question. Jesus answers it himself right here. Look at verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, some translations say heard and listened to the Father, comes to me. Those of you who are parents or have raised teenagers, is there a difference between them hearing and listening? The Bible is very clear, folks, that everybody hears. Paul's already laid that out when he gets to chapter 3, and he says that the whole world will be held accountable to God because all the whole world is under the law. He's already laid that all out in chapter 1, that everyone's without excuse. God's divine nature, His eternal qualities have been clearly seen through everything that's been, ma- been made, so they're without excuse. He then goes into chapter 2, and he, it, by the way, he even says in chapter 1, although they knew God, they didn't worship God or acknowledge Him. On top of that, he goes into chapter 2 and he says the Gentiles who didn't have the law of God like the Jews did have a law unto themselves where God's put on their hearts his law, his conscience, their conscience is convicting them or accusing or, 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 or acquitting them. In other words, he's put his law on everyone's heart. Everyone's born with a sense of right and wrong and everyone in the world will tell you that even though they have a sense of right and wrong, which may be different from what you consider right and wrong, they would all acknowledge that they've gone against what they thought was right and wrong a time or two in their life. The whole world has had God's law revealed to them in their need of a Savior and the fact that there's a sinner, that they're a sinner. And all along, God is going to and has been revealing to the world their need of what Jesus did to cover their sins. Everyone hears. But what makes us worthy to enter the kingdom 
is not that we prayed a prayer, that we cried a tear, that we were baptized, or anything we've done except believing in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of other things that he says will be evidences that we're saved, like baptism and other things like that. But when you start putting your faith in what you did, you're going to be in trouble. But the problem was the Jews as a whole felt that they were righteous in and of themselves and didn't need a spiritual savior to pay for their sins. That's why they didn't respond to the invitation into the kingdom. They thought they were already in. Why come to the wedding feast when I'm already, I'm already guaranteed to go? They thought they were okay. They felt that by their trying to keep the law of God, they were doing good enough. Now, part of the problem was, is that's what their preachers were teaching them. The Pharisees and so on were teaching that if you just keep the law, you can be good enough. Well, you'll never be as good as us. We're going to have a better space in, in the kingdom than you. But you can be get in by being good enough. And that goes exactly against everything that the Bible has been teaching all along. Go to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, look at verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with, with contempt. Don't miss that. Before we get into the parable, what's he dealing with? He's dealing with the attitude of people who thought that they were righteous in themselves. And so he tells this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. By the way, in that day, that was one of the worst things to be, was a tax collector. It hadn't changed a whole lot. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Here's how he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, that person, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and no one who humbles himself will be exalted. Which one got into the kingdom? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Tax collector, Why? Because he said, if I'm getting into the kingdom, you're going to have to get me in. I'm not worthy to get into the kingdom, but I want to get in. And you said you'd get me in if I believe the way you did covers me. Folks, I can look you in the eye and tell you that if I died tonight, I would go into the presence of the Lord. And it's not because I've been a preacher for so many years. It's not because I've walked with Jesus so many years. It's because in 1973, his spirit drew me. And I responded in faith and said, my life is yours. Have I lived it perfectly since then? No, neither have you. But you know what? He who began the good work in me is going to finish it. And I'm confident that he is able to keep that which I've committed against that day. His spirit, Romans 8 verse 16, is testifying with my spirit that I'm his child. I'm going to heaven, folks, and it has nothing to do with how good or bad I've been. I'm going because Jesus paid my price. And I'm worthy to enter the kingdom because of Jesus, not because of anything that I've done. You ask me if I died today, would I go to heaven? I already told you. The answer is yes. I don't say I hope so. I know so. And that's a wonderful thing. 
By the way, if it was tied to how good or bad I've been, I'd probably tell you I hope so. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 3. Here again we see that attitude that was illustrated in Luke 18. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the Jews, the Israelites, for them is that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then he says, of course, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen to me, folks. The Jews still thought that they were righteous in and of themselves. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are in here, and I know most of you that are in here are believers, and you, you, I can see it on your faces when I'm talking about knowing we're going to heaven when we die, and it's all because of him. I can see it. Let me say something to you. I know the struggle that you still face, because even though you know you're going to heaven because of Jesus, there's some days you don't feel worthy. Let me say something to you. You never will. If you're tying it to anything you do, you never will. But if you're reminded on a daily basis that your worthiness is tied to Jesus, relax. You're worthy. But Jim, you don't know what I did. Ah, you're looking at you again. It has nothing to do with you. But Jim, you don't know the things I think. You don't know the things I look at that I shouldn't look at. You don't know the stories that I tell that I wish I hadn't told. You don't know the pride that I struggle with. Welcome to the club. But your worthiness is not tied to anything you do. We're going somewhere with this, so keep that in mind. Because you're going to see Jesus talk to those who think they're in. Who actually appeared to respond to the invitation. See, the Jews didn't respond to the invitation because they thought they're already in guaranteed because they're children of Abraham and they've been living righteous. They didn't need to be in respond to the invitation. They're kind of automatically going. We're kind of grandfathered in. And they weren't worthy because they didn't know the proper response to the invitation. But you're going to see in just a second, Jesus tells an illustration, though, of someone who actually appeared to respond to the invitation. We're going to get to that in just a second. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 3 through 7. In Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did he save you because of anything you did? Well, let me ask you another question then. Is he going to finish what he started if you've been good enough? It doesn't have anything to do with how good you've been. You're going to miss out on some of the joy of what he's going to do. 
And you may have to go through harsher times of discipline if you resist the Holy Spirit's work in your life. But He's not waiting on you to be good enough for Him to bless you. He says, I just want you to continue to live the same way you lived in order to get into the kingdom. Once you're in the kingdom, I want you to continue to live that way on a daily basis. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 puts it this way. In the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. How did you receive Jesus as Lord? By faith. You heard what He offered. You heard the message of salvation, that it was done all by Jesus and received, to be received by faith. You believed it was true. You asked Him to do it, and you walked out of that encounter believing that He had, correct? On a daily basis now, you don't get up and say, Lord, I'm going to live for you today. You say, you say that I can't live for you apart from your grace, because apart from you I can do nothing. You say that it's you, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, who establishes me, establishes me in every good work and word. You say that it's you, and by the way, we're going to be looking at some of these scriptures in just a second. You say that it's you. I believe it. And I, by faith today, am going to walk in belief that what you said you would do, you would do. I'm going to do the things you say to do, but I'm going to believe it's you taking care of it and you doing it, not me. We'll get there in just a second. But also in this parable, look at verse 11. Go back to Matthew 22. In verse 11, Jesus points out that entrance into the kingdom is tied to his making us worthy and not our own worthiness. But he illustrates it in a different way. As he tells of a man without a wedding garment at the wedding feast. Now, when someone would come to a wedding feast back in that time, the master of the house would provide wedding party clothes, if you would, for everyone to wear as they arrived. So if you were invited and you responded to the invitation, when you showed up, they would give you a garment to wear. It was their way of saying that you're invited and you're welcome there. You're on the guest list, if you will. So if someone was at the party without the master's clothes, go back to the story here in 22, look at verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You see, if this guy is there in the wedding feast without the garment... In essence, he had said to whoever it was that was trying to put it on him, don't need it. My clothes are good enough. And to be in there and not wearing the garment was to say, don't need your garment, my, good, my clothes are good enough. So Jim, I have a question. Go for it. So... Mm -hmm. Responded. Yep. He's in there. Yep. Is he in there or not? Well, he, well, he came to see the guests. Yeah, exactly. Again, we have to keep in mind. So this is my question. Your question is. So Remember, it's a parable. Remember, it's a parable. You, get a, you can't take a parable and make it everything fit perfectly. It's a parable to teach a point. Okay. What's the point that he's trying to teach? You only get in by your response to my invitation, that's, the, that's it. 
the clothed, being clothed in righteousness, the masters. That's the point. See, when we try to take a parable and try to make every little detail fit to something or whatever, you're going to give yourself a bellyache. That's not the whole point of the parable. That's why when we look at this parable of the, 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 the prodigal son and the two sons, was he saved and then he got uh, lost and then he got saved, or was he a son already and he walked away and then came back? Yes. The point of the parable is to teach the father's heart and response. And that if you are willing to just say, I'm not worthy, and I want it, you'll be received. If you think, I, all these years I've worked for you and slaved for you and I never received a goat, you totally don't get it. Again, so I understand what your, your question is. Remember, the Bible says in Matthew 13 that there are those who respond to the seed and the soil springs up and it sure looks like they've responded. But trouble comes and it shows that they had no root. Some fall on the thorny soil and they were choked by the cares of this world, even though they responded. And actually, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me show you something about the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3. May I just say something? Go for it. I felt exactly the same way until you went back and explained about the garment. I appreciate that. That's a great point. Yes, again, the purpose of the parable is to teach the point. The point is, you only are worthy just by responding to the invitation, not by how good or bad you are. The point of the second part of the parable is, you are only able to stay in the kingdom or be, enter the kingdom and re, be received if you're wearing the, the righteousness of the Father, of the Master. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. See, when we read that, we sit there and we think about, oh, that's the world, that's, that's the world. But no, these are people that might be in our churches. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Folks, beware of those in the church who appear to have responded to God's invitation, but their faith is in what they have done not in what Christ has done. Remember in Matthew 7, don't take turn there because we've got to keep moving, but in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. But before that, they say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Listen closely. These are people that thought that the reason why God should accept them into the party was because they had been working. They didn't say, Lord, our faith was in you. They said, Lord, our faith was in what we've done. Folks, let me just tell you, I haven't been a pastor for many years now. Coming up on 40 almost. I've run into too many people in the church who think that God owes them something because they've worked harder. I'm a charter member. I have been faithful more than somebody else. 
And somehow, some way, they think that their righteousness has somewhat been earned by them. No. There's lots of people that claim the name of Christ who appear to have responded to the invitation. But God knows your heart. The question is, and I'll get right to you, the question is, is your faith in Jesus Christ? And are you on a daily basis learning? It's a, it's a grow, growing thing. Learning how to let him live his life that he's now given you through you. Go for it. The surrendering. It's a, but it's a process that we have to learn how to do. But there are those who, like I told you, I've talked to many people who say, I'm pretty sure I'm going because I've been good. That means you think your clothes are good enough. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verses 6 through 8. Let's go back to that garment that you were just talking about back there in the back. Revelation 19, look at verses 6 through 8. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, I want to look closely. Here he's talking about the marriage supper. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. If it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, it was given to her. But then it goes on and says the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wait a minute, Jim. This seems to contradict everything you just said. That the garments is what we've done. Stick with me. Don't leave. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. Look at verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 61. 61. Verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes, causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Don't miss this. Are these garments representative of the righteous deeds that we've done? Yes. But did we actually do them? No. Not if we've done everything we've done by faith. I've come to realize as I look back over my many years of walking with the Lord, a lot of the things I thought I was going to be rewarded for, I won't be because that was Jim doing it in his own strength. Have you ever heard people say this? Man, I'm burnt out. Does the Holy Spirit ever run out? No. Oh, it, could it be that we actually were serving the Lord in our own strength, serving the Lord in our own energy? But there's going to be a day when we'll be rewarded for all the things that we've done, whether good or bad, at the judgment seat of Christ. But you know what? On that day, everything I'm rewarded for, my attitude will be, I didn't do that. That was by your grace. And here we see, He's covered us, 
And as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. God doesn't just give us His righteousness to be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and put it on Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness was put on us. But not only is that how we get into heaven and how we're saved, but any righteous deeds that we do after salvation will have done by, been done by Him as well. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bomb you with this because we've got 20 minutes left and there's one more thing I want to really get into in the next passage in Matthew 22. Get your pen out. Get your paper ready. I'm going to give you some scriptures. I'm going to read them fast. You say, you're already fast. No, I'm not. Wait till you hear what's going to happen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. The verse prior to it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then the next verse says that it's God who gives you the desire and the ability to do whatever it is he wants to do. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, if you can keep up with me. If not, just write it down and double check me later on. Don't, don't just take anything I say as gospel. Double check it against the scriptures. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who's doing the work? You or him? It's him. We're doing it, but it's him doing it. The righteous deeds that we'll be rewarded for will be all done by him to the praise of his glorious grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And then verse, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I want you to see this, and I love how Paul puts this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Their servants through whom you believed as the Lord is assigned to each. I planted, Apollos waters, watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Paul says, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who did the growth. And don't be all impressed with Paul or Jim Johnson or anybody. They're just servants. They're just instruments that God used. God should be getting the glory. Well, I think you're really good at this, and I think she's really impressive with that. If you're impressed with anything, God did it. Ask my wife, who's sitting here on the front row. She knows me well, better than anybody in the world, besides Jesus. And she'll tell you, I'm not that impressive. She loves me, which is awesome. But listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Look what Paul says. He says, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For which, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, don't be impressed with human beings. If someone in the church is doing something that is impressive, that's God. And you need to be reminded of the fact that it's God. Don't think for yourself, though, that you're pretty impressive. Because it's God. What do you have that you didn't receive? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 4 through 6. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Don't miss that. Now there are varieties of gifts, same Spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Go to Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says it this way. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, it's him doing the work. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. First Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see it? Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. I don't hear as many pages turning. Some of you wore out. That's okay. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me ask you a question tonight. Whose clothes are you wearing? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? And are what, is what you do on a daily basis for Christ being done by Christ? Oh, by the way, that's why it's important. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that he's the one who determines your gifts and what it is you're to do. You need to find out what it is he's wired you to be and to do and how you fit into the body and just go have fun doing that. And don't let the preacher or the church or the personnel committee or the nominating committee write your job description. You go let the Lord show you how he's wired you and you will find so much joy being the part of the body that you're supposed to be. But when you do it, don't think you're earning any points. Learn how to say, Lord, do it through me. I still study, I still pray, I still prepare, but when I walk into the pulpit either to preach or to teach the Word of God, I have learned to walk in believing that God's going to do what He said He would do and gifted me to do. And I don't walk home every night now afterwards and say, how did I do? My poor wife put up with that in the first years of our ministry. Every Sunday after preaching, I'd turn to her on the way to lunch. How do you think I did? And she probably lied a few times, but she loved me. All right, I got to tell a quick joke. We're get, we got, we got a, this preacher, he, uh, he was going on a trip. I'm sorry, his wife was going on a trip, and she says to him, Honey, if something were to happen to me on this trip and I were to die, I want you to take the box that's under the bed and open it. But only open it if I die. If I don't die, don't open that box. But there's a box under the bed. If something happens to me on this trip and I don't come back, you open the box. But until then... You do not open that box. Well, the husband is killing him now. He doesn't know what's in the box. So he opens the box while she's on the trip, and he finds $20,000 and three eggs. So he quickly puts the box back, and he's now wondering why there's $20,000 in this box and, and three eggs, and his wife comes back from the trip, and he doesn't want to confess that he's looked in the box, but he, he, it's killing him. He finally says, honey, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't do what you said. I looked in the box, and uh, I found $20,000 and three eggs. What's that all about? 
She said, well, honey, you know, you and I have been married for 50 years and you've been preaching the Bible for 50 years. And every time you preach the bad sermon, I put an egg in the box. He said, we've been married 50 years. There's only three eggs in the box. I guess that's not too bad. What's the $20,000? She said, every time it got to a dozen, I had to sell. I'm right now talking to the Lord about whether or not we dive into this next section or save it for next week. Let's, 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 let's tiptoe into it best we can. Go into Matthew 22. Look at verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, what I want to deal with in the time that we have left here tonight is this. I want you to notice what the Pharisees' true purpose in asking Jesus this question really was, according to verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now, I want you to stick with me here because I want to talk to you about a problem we have in the church as Christians. I'm going to show you what they're trying to do to Jesus, and I'm going to show you who's behind it and how we fall prey to this trap ourselves many times. Go to Luke 11 real quick. Luke 11, verses 53 and 54. In Luke 11, verses 53 and 54. As he went away from there, Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So here we see it in two different ways and illustrated two different ways. They're trying to entangle him in his words. They're trying to get him to talk about a lot of stuff so they can trip him up in his words. We need to know where this is truly coming from and how we're best to respond when this person tries it on us. You all know where this is really coming from, right? It's not coming from the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's coming from who? Satan himself. You know the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that he's, we, we need to understand that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In Genesis chapter 3, if you were to go back and look at verse 1, Satan came to Eve and he says, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, by the way, did Satan know that his question was wrong? Of course. It was a stupid question. Well, the scripture had already said that God says you can eat from any of the tree. The only tree you can't eat from is this one. Satan comes and says, Help me out. I got a question. I'm a little confused. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? What was he doing? He was trying to get her to respond so he can take what she says, trip her up. The Bible actually tells us to avoid unbiblical discussions. 
Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We need to understand that the enemy's out there, oh, and especially on Facebook right now and social media. He's out there ready to trip you up. He wants to get you talking. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 26. 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, as you know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, the scripture says we're not to get into debates and discussions with people. We're to rightly handle the word of truth, and you're going to see in our study tonight and next week that Jesus' response was just to share with them the Scripture and let the Spirit and the Word of God do His work on their hearts. We're not to get into debates and arguments with people. You're in 2 Timothy. Turn over to Titus. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions like we just looked at, and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Keep reading now. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Folks, the Bible's very, very clear that we are not to get into debates with people and try to win an argument. But part of the problem is with us, not just with the fact that the enemy's out there to try to get us tripped up and into our words. There's a lot of people out there on the web today and a lot of people in the church today who like to show others how much they know. I used to fall into this prey and this trap when I was a young preacher, and God's blessed me to be able to have a lot of the Bible in my heart. People would ask questions, and I would love to give arguments and answers. And I used to love to debate with people. 
Because my thinking was, you want to have a battle with me over the scriptures? I got more bullets in my gun than you. And all I was doing was showing my flesh when the scripture, if I really did read it, like I said I did, and if I really did know it like I claimed I did, over and over said, don't get sucked into those debates. But some of us love to show how much we know. What does the scripture say in 1 Corinthians 8? Verses 1 through 3, knowledge what? Puffs up. But love builds up. Go to James chapter 3. Listen to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And that even means on Facebook. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire of a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does the spring forth forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This isn't the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For there, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, where, where these exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're going to stop here tonight and pick up on this story and this passage next week. But let me just say this to you. Satan's purpose was to use the Pharisees and the Herodians. We'll get to that next week, who the Herodians are. To try to entangle Jesus in what he said. We saw in Luke chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, that they wanted to get him talking a lot so they could take what he said and trip him up in his words. Satan is still using the same tricks. He doesn't have any new ones. They're still working. And what he's going to want to do is to get you into debate with people. And you're going to think you're working for God, but you're actually falling into his trap. Not many of you should try to be teachers, folks. What should we do? We should know the word, share the word, and leave it. Share with them what the scripture says, and leave it. We'll deal more with this passage next week. But for, the, for now, believe that God's word's able to get them where they need to be. Believe that he's powerful enough through his spirit and through his word that he doesn't need you to win the argument. And oh, if they can be convinced by you, 
They can be convinced by somebody else tomorrow. Why don't you believe that God's big enough to do his work? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.